Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, our first of 2024, we'll discuss how Canadian Conservatives should think about climate policy as demands grow for the Conservative Party to release its climate plan, as well as the public backlash to the City of Toronto's renaming of Dundas Square as part of an ongoing exercise of historical revisionism. David, I hope you had a nice holiday. It's great to be back in conversation with you. Thank you so much. Uh, good to be back on this fr- frosty day. And we we're just discussing, I'm back from a, a visit to Brandon, Manitoba, uh, where I had a chance to see the future of agricultural equipment. And it's it's damn impressive, I have to say. Indeed. I, I mentioned climate change in Dundas Square, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but David, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask for your reaction to Donald Trump's strong showing in this week's Iowa caucuses. And what they tell us about the Republican presidential primary and Republican politics more generally. What does it mean, David? Is there a way back from a Trumpian party, or is this the Republican party now? I don't think we learned anything from Iowa that wasn't there to know if you weren't afraid to look it in the face. It is a Trumpian party. That's not to say that everyone is Trump enthusiastic, and that's not to say that he controls that Joe Biden won in 2020 because he detached some points, seven, eight, maybe a little bit more of traditional Republican voters uh, from the Republican Party. That's enough to reelect Joe Biden if, if seven, eight points worth of Republicans reject Trump in the general election. But what it does, what it does tell us is the attempt of the powerful people in the Republican Party to wiggle their way past Trump without ever taking him on frontally. That really is a cost, is a failure. Um, that the strategy for both Nikki Haley and um, Ron DeSantis was to say Donald Trump was, was a great was a great man who ran a great presidency. Um, who was uh, we're not going to say he didn't win the twenty twenty election the way he did. We're not going to contradict him on that. But for reasons we won't tell you and can't specify, we think it's time to move past this wonderful man, this victim, this martyr, this great president. And that argument, unsurprisingly, went nowhere. If you if you won't. Tell people why they should vote for you as opposed to the other person. Uh, it's hard to persuade them to vote for you as opposed to the other person. So that approach is, is I think, closed. And where the future of the Republican Party is, is if the Trump loses badly enough, as he certainly deserves to, out of that wreckage and after a seven years of Trump-caused defeats, um, there may be a rethinking. Last thing, I know this is too long an answer. Canadians and other allies in the United States need to understand that the price of the second Trump presidency is not something to worry about in 2025. It's being paid right now. Uh, that we just marked the 100th day of since Hamas's attack on Israel. Next week, we'll mark the 100th day of Speaker Mike Johnson's blockade 
of emergency aid to Israel and Ukraine. President Biden asked for 60 plus billion for Ukraine, 13 billion for Israel, 14 billion for the border, some uh, money for other projects too in a defense supplemental. He asked that on October the 20th. It has not come to a vote. And that's the doing of the speaker. And they are doing it at Trump's behest because Trump despises Ukraine, admires Putin, and some in his party share that view, but many just yield to it. And so uh, Ukraine is running out of ammunition already, not in 2025, today. Great insights, David. We'll come back to some of these issues as the primary season continues. But now I want to turn to Canada's Conservative Party and climate policy. Although the salience of climate change has fallen in the face of inflation and affordability issues, it remains in the minds of many political strategists a key threshold issue that the party needs to meet in order to reach voters on the other issues that they care about. The Conservatives are clearly opposed to the consumer carbon tax, but have yet to outline their overall climate policy. What, in your mind, are the opportunities and risks for the party as it crafts its climate agenda? Look, for the past couple of years, the Conservative Party has tried to build a coalition that spans from everyone who thinks that a, a carbon tax is not the right way to address the climate problem, all the way out to people who deny that there's a climate problem at all, and maybe to people who deny that there's such a thing as climate even in the first place. And this has been part of the present leadership's approach, which is that they want to make sure that they don't lose the fringe ideological element to fringe parties. And so they say things that can be read and interpreted in non-fringe ways for sure, but also in fringe ways. And so the door has been open to outright climate deniers inside the conservative party. As you say, at some point, there's going to have to be a decision here, which is, do you acknowledge this as a problem? The party is now committed to no climate tax. There are other ways to address this problem. You know, as, as the Biden administration has done, the Biden administration has also ruled out a carbon tax, but it's had a series of, of big climate policies. A, a carbon tax is the most efficient, inexpensive, and market-friendly way to deal with the carbon problem. But if the voters won't wear it, then you can certainly address it in ways that are less efficient, less inexpensive, and you know, uh, less market-friendly. And so the irony may be that you get the Conservative Party of Canada advocating a less market-friendly approach to climate and other parties advocating the more climate-friendly, sorry, the more market-friendly approach. But politics can be a strange business. There are lots of less market-friendly ways to do climate policy if you've ruled out the most market-friendly way. Yeah, well, let's stay on that topic because you were an early adopter among Anglo-American conservatives in favor of carbon taxes. Yeah. Yet the carbon taxes face some challenges here because first, the price has to be really high to seriously affect individual and corporate behavior. And second, the substitution options in some cases, think for instance, in home heating, have been too slow or expensive for individuals or companies to shift their consumption. And that's led to new questions, even among carbon tax proponents, about whether the political economy of carbon taxation is just too tough. What's your sense, David? Should policymakers be moving on from carbon taxes to more politically plausible climate action plans? The way to do a carbon tax is it, it matters. You want it to start small and then grow at predictable rates over time. So people engaged in long-term planning have information about what the climate tax um, level will be 15, 20, 25 years from now. And the reason that, in my mind, that has always been important I've always thought the goal of the most important medium term goal of a carbon tax is to give nuclear energy investors security that nuclear power will become cost competitive over the lifespan of a nuclear power plant, which is 30 and 40 years. 
That's our problem. The nuclear is, until we get some really exotic source of energy, nuclear is the biggest part of the next answer. And nuclear cannot compete if the externalities of climate are not accounted for. If you account mm -hmm. for externalities, then nuclear is competitive. So that's always been my goal is how do you persuade private sector investors in nuclear power? This is something where they're going to see their money back. But another way you can do it is you just subsidize the nuclear power. You just write it. It's, as I say, it's less market friendly, but it'll do the job too. Just give them a check and say, okay, we're, you know, we're going to do this in a, in a different way. And I think it's pretty clear that climate taxes are different, difficult to do. People don't trust the government. And in Canada, they have some, once the government starts dispensing regional favors from the carbon tax, then yes, it, it destroys credibility. And, and um, the Trudeau government's inability to say a consistent message to every group of voters in Canada, which has been such a feature of that government, has been a feature of their climate policy too. So you, so the alternatives are direct subsidies to energies of the future. What you believe, if, if you had a tax, you wouldn't have to guess what the energy of the future is. The market would tell you. But if you're going to subsidies, then you have to guess, with, and the risk of being wrong is great. Um, you, uh, you can also um, find other ways to subsidize other important parts of the problem. In a country like Canada, one of the most important drivers of climate policy is the use of urban space, urban and suburban space. Um, people who live in a tower are much more climate friendly than people who live in a single family home. And I don't want to cast aspersions here. I live in a single family home, so I'm, I'm a sinner too. But you can find other ways to make to encourage the idea of stackable housing rather than single family homes. And then you, again, that mitigates climate costs. You can subsidize carbon capture. You know, that this is an emerging an emerging technology where basically you pull carbon out of the sky, compress it into a liquid and inject it back into the ground. Um, that requires a non-carbon emit that takes energy and it requires a non-carbon emitting energy source like a nuclear power plant. But if you have enough nuclear electricity, you can begin to do that. And this is this work is beginning to be done. And there, there are ca carbon capture and storage facilities already appearing in North America. So there are a lot of ways to write, there are a lot of ways to do this. I mean, one of the things that um, economics teaches us is there there are a lot of roots and and maybe I've been too enthralled with the clarity and blackboard elegance of a solution that is politically not feasible. If it's politically not feasible, then do do things in a more politically feasible way. Just don't deny that the problem exists and that governments of all sizes, not just China, India, and the United States have a part to play. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership, will get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday, a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. You mentioned the internal politics within the Conservative Party itself. I, I want to take up that subject now. It's self-evident that the Conservative Party's public support is concentrated in energy-producing parts of the country. And support for the sector has become a key part of the party's identity. Yeah. Is there a way in your mind, David, to reconcile an ambitious climate policy with the defending the ongoing importance of the oil and gas sector? Yeah. Well, sometimes you have to tell, bring people a, a tough message. And look, people who are right of center 
can be very scathing about uh, left of center parties that won't tell other kinds of industries the news that they need that they need to hear. The future is going to be different from the past. Um, whether it's steel, whether it's certain kinds of in-person provision of services, whether it's the healthcare sector that needs radical revisions of the respective roles of of doctors and 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 other healthcare providers that make that a lot a lot of what drives the cost of healthcare are guild protections for doctors and conservatives have been at the forefront of saying you know. You, you don't need a doctor to give cert, certain kinds of basic treatments. A lot of other people with less expensive credentials could do that. So sometimes you have to, to your own constituents, bring them the news. The, the planet is going to reach peak oil consumption sometime in the next 10 years. North America has already reached peak oil consumption. The outlook for gas is different from oil. Ga- gas is much more of a transitional fuel than oil is. And the oil sands are particularly going to be just priced out of existence. It's all, that's always been not just the world's most economic, uh, environmentally challenging form of oil, but also one of the world's most expensive forms of oil. And when the Keystone Pipeline was canceled, you'll remember the great debate, then President Trump authorized it. It still didn't get built because it takes more than permission to build a pipeline. It takes an economic case, and that case has been lagging. So change is coming to the energy sector. And what market-friendly parties are supposed to do is find ways to um, cushion the shock of change. But make people understand that change does come and the economy of the future will not look like the economy of the past. You're speaking with us from the United States, of course. Uh, We've discussed in the past the idea of greater continental integration on climate policy, energy supply, etc. David, in the current political context, what, if anything, can be practically done to pursue a North American climate policy? Yeah, well, in in an ideal world, you would say you would have either an explicit or at least implicit carbon price that was agreed between Canada, the United States, and and Mexico, too, if possible. And then uh, one of the parts of is you you would need then to impose the climate price, not just internally, but through a common tariff. Because China and India, who are the the biggest producers of of climate-changing gases at this point, they're not going to willingly comply. And negotiating with them is going to be very difficult, if not hopeless. But what you can do is force them to internalize their costs by applying a tariff. And the the why the more countries that are included by that tariff, the more powerful it would be. So I'm I'm being a little fantastical here, but what in, in my dream world, what you have is a an agreed US Canada or ideally NAFTA price of carbon. Then there's a bilateral negotiation or a trilateral between NAFTA um, and the EU and then the UK and Japan. And if you could someday have a common carbon frontier around that block of developed countries, you could impose a lot of will. China is too big to bully. Um, It's not Russia. Uh, You can't just uh, snap your fingers and give them orders. They won't comply. But if they're confronted by a united front of NAFTA plus EU plus UK plus Japan with, you know, Australia, other small friendly democracies included too, ideally, then you have some leeway. As I say, you may not do this through an explicit carbon price of the kind that I've been hoping for. It, but at least the, 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 plan, the planners and policymakers need to, in their own mind, we know what the price of carbon is. We, this, so we have some rational basis for saying, how do we substitute? If we're using direct subsidies, if we're using some other form, at least we know what, what the numbers are. Yes. One of the problems with the centrally planned approach has always been you can't make rational decisions because you don't have prices. And the, the goal of market policy should be, ideally, the prices are explicit, but at least at least let them, let them be implicit so policymakers know what makes sense and what doesn't. 
uh, on the subject of what makes sense and what doesn't, I want to wrap up on, on uh, the city of Toronto's decision to remove the name Dundas from public libraries, streets, subway stops, and even the famous Dundas Square in the city's downtown. The decision, as you know, David, was made based on the disputed historical claim that Harry Dundas, an 18th century Scottish politician, defended the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, what do you make of the decision and this broader trend? Yeah, well, as you, you suggested, the decision is on its face. The historical claims are on their face false. It's just not, it doesn't happen to be true about Henry Dundas. But even supposing that it were, many people who have played important roles in the history of Canada have not had the attitudes about race, sex, and other things that people happen to have at the moment. And and we're, we're very confident, of course, that we're correct and they were wrong. Um, <laughs> so the president poses its judgments on the past, even, even if it were true, even if the things said about Henry Dundas were true, they still shouldn't do it because he's still important in Canadian history, even wh whatever other things he did. It's like John A. McDonald, even if the things said about John A. McDonald were true, he would still be the creator of Canada as a country. And if you have regard for Canada as a country, you have to honor its creators, even if it turns out they have faults. I have, I have an enormous piece that will appear in the Atlantic uh, between now and the time you and I next speak about the history of Woodrow Wilson, who was both one of the founders of American foreign policy, America's role in the world, and also was very much a bigot. And I make the argument that knowing that he's a bigot, you still should honor the positive aspects of his legacy. And that means leaving his name up in places of honor. Um, but I, what I'm pleased to see is that the public has a kind of intuitive sense of the wrongness of all of this. Um, and here's maybe the most important thing I'd like to stress. Canada has been largely spared the culture war politics that has done so much harm to the United States and the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom finds itself outside of any regional trading area right now and with the worst economic record of any pure country over the past decade because they allowed a lot of weird grievances to push them out of the European Union that had nothing to do with the merits or demerits of being in the European Union. So Canada has had the good fortune and the good sense to avoid that kind of culture war policy. Unfortunately, Canada, we, that, that is ceasing to be true. And in Canada's case, unlike in peer countries where the culture wars tend to originate on the far right, in Canada, the culture wars have originated on the far left. And so you have people who want to traduce the history of their country, a country with already a dangerously weak sense of national identity, dangerously few agreed heroes. And they want to erase what little agreement there is, what will be left of Canada if, if, you, if there's no one to admire? And, and, if you, and what, is, what happens to Canada when you tell people, the people you should admire, we're going to lie to you about? We're going to pretend that, that Henry Dundas was more implicated in the slave trade than the people whose language we are using to rename the square, who are actually the Walmart of the slave trade. They were the place, you know, <laughs> they offered the most slaves at the lowest price. That's why their language became powerful and popular. You know, it's just it's just a series of lies. It's like, you know, what's happened with the residential claims of genocide at residential schools. It, people can tell when they're being lied to. And what what happens then, what you would like to happen is that for good sense to prevail. But instead, what you can get is counter radicalization. So my plea, and I think the negative reaction to Dundas Square gives us an opportunity. Culture wars of the left are as bad and as dangerous as culture wars of the right. It's important to build your country on a basis of agreed cultural consensus. You need heroes. The heroes are going to be imperfect. Don't lie to people by creating imaginary or fake heroes whose records you're erasing much more blatantly than the record of the actual heroes has ever been erased. Um, just, just 
have some moderation and sense of inclusion, not go looking for cultural war triumphs against your imagined cultural enemies. Your fellow citizens are not your cultural enemies. They are your cultural compatriots. They need to be the people with whom you have a cultural basis so you can argue about the things you need to argue about, like how do you protect the climate? Do you use taxes or subsidies? That, that's, a, that's a good argument to have. The question of was the country, was, is your country, along with Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union, guilty of genocides on the basis of, 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 of false facts? That, just, that does no good for anybody, including history. David, you you anticipated my my last question. Uh, like you, I've been struck by the political salience of this decision and how long it's persisted as a public issue. Um, should that give us reason for optimism? Are we uh, seeing a, a bit of a correction to the excesses of whatever one calls this ideological movement? Um, uh, I, I would like to be optimistic. I hope common sense will prevail. My guess is that we, we have a we're going to have a counter-radicalization first. And, you know, we have seen it in response to the trucker protests. We've seen it in response to COVID. Um, but there's no reason to believe that Canada is inherently immune to the infections that go around its peer democracies. So far, Canada has been largely protected. And it would be nice if Canada could continue to be protected. But if culture war politics are the politics of tomorrow, then they're going to come to Canada too. And in this case, the door is opened by people not who are offering right-wing paranoia and bigotry, uh, but by people who are offering left-wing left delusions and fantasies and false claims in order to wage war on their own country's history and culture. Well, that's a sober way to wrap up our first conversation of 2024, but a ton of insight as always. I look forward to catching up in a, in a couple of weeks, David. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. 